Let's turn back in your Bibles to the book of Ezra and chapter 3. The book of Ezra, chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 1 through the first part of verse 6. The book of Ezra, chapter 3, and reading at verse 1. Again, please give your careful attention as we read God's Word. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Amen. And thus far again, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. What did the returning Jews do when they arrived home? Well, Ezra 2 ended with a reference to the fact that some of the returning exiles remained in the city of Jerusalem and lived there, and others went to their towns and lived there. Chapter 2, verse 70. Ezra chapter 3 begins with a reference to the seventh month. The children of Israel are in the towns, and then they gather together as one man with those in the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1. As we noted last Lord's Day evening, it's most likely that the seventh month here is a reference to the Hebrew month of Tishri. That's around September, October time as we count the year. This was the most important month in the Hebrew religious calendar. And so, as we come back to this text this evening, we see that these verses show that in the midst of other human responsibilities and needs, the greatest priority of the people of God is to engage in God-centered, 
biblically informed worship. We're going to think about three things this evening. First of all, prioritized worship revisited. Secondly, regulated worship. And then thirdly, focused worship. So first of all then, prioritized worship revisited, which was our consideration as we began this exposition last Lord's Day evening. Prioritized worship revisited verses 1 through 3. The ultimate goal of the church is the right-ordered worship of God. The exiles here have returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding area with one principal aim, to worship God according to His commandments. Now, in the context of the Old Testament, corporate worship meant the ruined temple in Jerusalem had to be rebuilt. They could not worship according to the commandment of God until the temple was rebuilt. They could not perform the annual and monthly, weekly and daily rituals of sacrifice until it was reinstated. So the exiles first turned their attention to the rebuilding of the altar and the recommencing of the offering of the prescribed sacrifices. We read of that in verse 3. Nothing was more important to them than the worship of God. Not their homes, nor their families, nor their jobs. Worship, according to the commandment of God, was the great priority. And so they gather together in Jerusalem as one man to attend to this priority. Now, as we think of the sacrifices being offered once the altar is restored, we reflect upon the nature of these sacrifices. It was a substitutionary nature of animal sacrifice. It spoke of both the magnitude of Israel's sin, that such sacrifice was necessary, And it spoke of the need for justice to be met. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the setting up of the altar in Jerusalem signaled, was a sign to the exiles of their great need, not for the continuing offering day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, of bulls and goats and sheep. But it signaled their great need for the coming Messiah, of which these things were but type and picture. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So, prioritized worship revisited, verses 1 through 3. We then turn in the second place this evening to regulated worship, verse 2 and verses 4 through 6a, regulated worship. This is what we see next. Not only was worship a priority, such worship, according to the commandment of God, was regulated. 
The returnees here rebuilt the altar and performed the sacrifices according to strict regulation, as it is written. Verse 2 and verse 4. What does this tell us? It tells us that the Jews under the Old Covenant were not entitled to worship as they pleased. God's rules, God's commandments for His worship did not allow for personal taste. They did not make provision for individual preference. Even though it had been impossible for the Israelites to engage in such worship in exile in Babylon, to do that which God had commanded whilst they were away from Jerusalem without altar, without temple, we see here that they had not forgotten what God's regulations are. And so, as soon as it became physically possible to do so, they returned to worship as it was written, as it was commanded by God. Now, we might think that it would have been understandable if the people's priority upon returning to the land from exile were one of conciliation with the people around them and of forging alliances which, if necessary, might involve some measure of compromise, finding common ground. As one commentator puts it, he says, quote, dealing with Persian rule would have been easier in the larger numbers that such conciliation would have brought about. He goes on to say, one can almost hear the allegations of, quote, narrow-mindedness and, quote, sectarianism leveled against these temple builders, end quote. After all, we might ask, perhaps those in their day asked, what would be so wrong with introducing some innovations in the worship if it meant that more people would be on board? There was, after all, safety in numbers, was there not, in the ancient world as we think there is today? Nevertheless, these returning Jews, led by Joshua and Zerubbabel, insisted that the worship of God can be only truly offered when it is in accordance with what God has commanded. And if that meant opposition, it meant opposition. If that meant smallness of numbers in comparison with the overall size of peoples dwelling in that physical place, then so be it. They considered anything other than the strict commandment of the Lord an innovation of men. Now, what are we to make of all of this? Are we to simply argue that their principle here was merely an Old Testament principle that has been brought to conclusion, abrogated, by the dawning of the new covenant in the coming of Christ? Was it relevant for them in their day, but no longer relevant for us in our day? 
we might put it this way, is it true that New Testament worship is no longer regulated as was Old Testament worship? Well, it is true to say that New Testament worship is no longer dominated by the ritual of animal sacrifice. That is true. And it's not dominated by the concept of a single holy place, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That certainly was the case under the Old Covenant. It is not the case under the New Covenant. The Apostle Paul argues that Indeed, believers are no longer under the tutors and guardians of the old covenants, but have been set free to think and to respond in obedience to God's Word as those, as it were, grown up responsible children of God, Galatians 3, 24, 25. One commentator then, reflecting on that principle, says this, quote, Worship then has grown up under the new covenant in accordance with the age of the Spirit in which we now reside, end quote. So there is a measure of truth to that. Indeed, Paul seems to address that when he writes to the Colossian church, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, where he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there Paul makes clear that he does not want these Colossians in particular, and all Christians under the New Covenant, to return to the forms of the Old Testament worship sacrifices, the Old Testament festivals, and so forth. Those rituals have been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Nevertheless, and if you've not been tracking, then hear me what I'm saying, but nevertheless, though Paul says all of that, and it is right and proper that he says all of that, nevertheless, he is equally adamant that extra-biblical regulations under the New Covenant are not permissible, just as they were not permissible under the Old Covenant. He says they might seem to have some benefits in promoting godliness, but in reality, they do not. In the end, though they may seem to have some profitability, these promoted outward forms of innovative thinking of men are examples of what he will call self-made religion. Colossians 2 verses 20 through 23. So we need to be clear in the light of all of Scripture, in the light of the New Testament, however strongly Paul criticizes a return to the ceremonial aspects of Old Testament worship, he is equally strong in denouncing the imposition on the conscience of the people of God of any forms of worship that are not explicitly commanded by God. That's the point. In theological terms, of course, we refer that to what we call the regulative principle of worship. How do we summarize that principle? We only do, 
but we must do those things that God has explicitly commanded in His worship. That is true under the Old Covenant, and it's true under the New Covenant. And so there is just as much concern for worship by what God has commanded in the New Covenant for Christ and His apostles as there was under the Old Covenant. So, what does that mean practically for us as a congregation here of the worshiping people of God? Well, the questions that must concern us wherever and whenever we are engaged in public worship are the same today as they were in the day of Ezra. Not in the specifics, but in the principles. What questions are these? The question, more simply put, is this. Whatever we are doing in worship this evening, has God commanded it? That's the most fundamental question. And that question applies in the day of Ezra under the Old Covenant, and it applies to us this evening under the New Covenant. Has God commanded it? If He has, not only may we do it, we must do it. If He has not, then we are not to do it. And no man has a right to inflict that upon the consciences of the people of God. How do we establish, has God commanded it? Well, we ask the next question. Is it written in His Word? How do we know what God has commanded? We know it from the Holy Scriptures. Has God written it for us, revealed it in His Holy Word? If so, then we do it. If not, we have no business, brethren, violating the consciences of men and women by insisting that we practice any such thing. Now, of course, not every detail of what we end up doing in worship is going to be covered by this principle. Let me try and illustrate. The things themselves that we do are explicitly commanded by God. Under the Old Covenant, whether it was festivals and sacrifices, days, times, and so forth, they were given through Moses. In the New Covenant, there are less of those specifics do this, do this, do this. There are still some things specifically commanded, but there are also things which we call the circumstances or the forms. If you really like the theological technical language, there are other things called rubrics. What are they? Well, those are the things of how do you do the things that God commands? When do you do them? Um, And particularly, what are the content of the things that God commands. Let me try and illustrate. We are commanded to gather together to worship God, to do the things He has commanded. But specifically at what time? Does Scripture say that you have to come here at five o'clock on a Sunday evening to have evening worship? If you know anything of your Bibles, you will know it does not. That is a circumstance. And our forefathers down through generations have recognized that and said, those are the things that are ordered by wisdom in the light of nature. So, we could just as legitimately meet at six o'clock, just as legitimately meet at four o'clock, but we are to meet. 
Now, what about the things we are supposed to do? We are to sing God's praise. We're commanded to do that. But then we might ask, okay, but what exactly are we to sing each week? We have a hymnal full of hymns. Well, which ones do we sing each week? Well, the choice of hymns are according to the light of nature and wisdom. They are to be biblical. They are to be full of truth. But we are thankful to say we are the beneficiaries of a rich heritage. We have many hymns that we can sing to the praise of God. And so as we sing uh, typically three hymns, morning and evening, uh, they can be selected according to wisdom and the light of nature. What about uh, some of the things of the circumstance of our action, of how we are doing those acts of worship? Like, for instance, do we stand to sing? Do we sit to pray? Uh, these are kind of posture questions. Um, those are kind of some of the things that come to this term of rubrics. Again, although there are examples of those things in Scripture, there is not explicit command that on each and every occasion, and particularly in public worship, um, it's not explicitly commanded that we stand every time to sing, nor is it uh, explicitly commanded that we do not stand to pray. Um, we have certain practices established in our services according, again, to the light of nature. There may be differences. If you visit in other congregations, you may find that they do some of those circumstantial things a little bit differently. Some congregations sit to sing and stand to pray. That's not a sin. And if we visit there in the good order of the church, we participate with them in their practice in those things. So all of that to say there are some things that are not going to be specified when it comes to the circumstances, to the forms. What exactly do you sing? When we consecutively read God's Word, then we read this next portion week by week. Um, when you think of what's going to be preached, then the elders seek by wisdom to determine what is the next book that we will take on, morning and evening, and so forth. But when it comes to the commanded principle of worship, not only are there circumstances, not only are there forms and rubrics, which are the secondary things of the how and the when and the where and all of that, they are what we call the elements of worship, which are the things which God explicitly commands. The singing of His praise, prayer, the reading and exposition of Scripture, the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. These things which God explicitly commands are specified. And in those things, there is no place for discussion. There's no light of nature consideration when God says, you are commanded to sing my praise. Well, do I feel like doing that this week or not? Is not a relevant consideration. It was said of Puritan Richard Rogers, who was once in the company of a very respectable gentleman. Uh, this gentleman said to him, Mr. Rogers, I like you a great deal, and I like your company very well. Only you are a little too precise for me. Why do you have to be so precise? Oh, sir, replied Richard Rogers, I am precise because I serve a very precise God. God 
regulates his worship. He's very precise about it when it comes to the elements, the things that he would have us do and the things that he would have in his worship. Well, then that brings us in the third place to focused worship. Again, verses 4 through 6a, focused worship. Not only is worship to be a priority, not only is it to be regulated, but we find here in these verses it has a great focus. What is that focus? Well, of course, it's God Himself, the true one and true living God of Israel. Now, we see that illustrated here in their celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, or sometimes called the Feast of Booths. We might ask ourselves, why was the celebration of this feast the very first thing they did when the altar had been built? Establishing of the altar was the priority in order that worship might begin again. So why was the celebration of Feast of Tabernacles the very first thing they did when the altar had been rebuilt? Verse 4. Well, Tabernacles as a feast was one of the three most important festivals in the Hebrew religious calendar. And so when the Jews were making their way to the city of Jerusalem for these festivals that God has commanded them to do under the Old Covenant, there were three such occasions. There was the Feast of Passover in the spring, the Feast of Weeks in the summer, and this feast, which is the focus here, the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. The Feast of Tabernacles marked the beginning of a new agricultural year for Israel. And remember that Israel was very much an agrarian society, and so this was the focus of how the whole community was to operate. This time, the last of the grain, the fruits were gathered and stored, and there followed then a seven-day event, seven-day celebration of festival in Jerusalem, when each family would construct shelters on the roofs of their houses, and they slept in those very seeming flimsy uh, uh, shelters overnight. Um, it was meant to signify something very important. It wasn't just a case of a camp out like sometimes uh, children ask to do, you know, can I sleep out in the tent in the yard tonight? Uh, it's not just something like that. It was something very significant religiously. The whole thing, the festival of tabernacles, the uh, living in booths, sleeping in those booths for seven days was meant to symbolize and to remind them of their wilderness wanderings. We read of it in Leviticus 23 in verses 33 through 43, when the Israelites then had no permanent homes in which to live, and yet the Lord had provided for them and sustained them. And so tabernacles was to be an annual reminder of God, their great provider and protector. So, what was tabernacles to mean for these returning exiles in the book of Ezra? Well, they'd spent the best part, most of them, of two generations in exile in Babylon. And so, within weeks of returning home, remembering a somewhat arduous journey, they're not uh, on uh, airplanes from Babylon to uh, Judah, 
they're not in comfortable vehicles, uh, they're not in uh, luxury um, rail cars or anything of our modern transportation. Uh, most of them made the journey on foot. After that arduous journey, they are now to camp out in makeshift shelters. Um, they weren't even going to get to enjoy for this week um, the comfort of the homes that they did have, whether it be in the city or in the towns. Uh, instead of the relative comfort of those places, uh, they experienced the discomfort of life for this week of the Festival of Tabernacles. Why was that so important? Why was that to be observed? Why couldn't they get a pass for this year and just at least get themselves established and get to enjoy living in a real house and a real home in, in Israel again before we had to get to all of this uh, hardness and ardor, ardor of life? Well, because nothing spelt out to them with greater clarity that their lives were wholly dependent upon God to provide for them than this act of obedience in observing tabernacles, reminding them of a time when they didn't even have the option of living in a permanent house. And so the whole thing was meant to symbolize that circumstance and to remind them that even though they're back in Jerusalem, even though they're again back in the land that God had promised them, they were still yet a pilgrim people. That this was not the end. They were still on a far greater journey through a yet still wilderness to a land that truly flowed with milk and honey, a true promised land, which, of course, the writer to the Hebrews speaks at length at in Hebrews chapter 11 of the Old Covenant saints, who even though they received the physical promise of the land that God had promised to Abraham, yet they still look forward to something greater, heaven itself above. And so, tabernacles was to remind them of that, even when they were established in the land that this was not the end in and of itself. They were still dependent upon God. They were still on a pilgrim journey that would only end when they came to the glories of heaven above. The prophet Zechariah was a prophet of this same period as Ezra. Uh, we call him, along with uh, Haggai and uh, Malachi, a post-exilic prophet on the other side of the exile. He foretold a day in the future when God's blessing would be seen, and in doing so, he employs this same picture and the symbols of the Feast of Tabernacles. Turn to Zechariah chapter 14, and we read from verse 16 through verse 19. Here the prophet writes, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. He goes on to say, and if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. 
And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. Now, what is Zechariah speaking of here? He is foretelling a day when God will come in judgment against His enemies and gather His people to Himself. That's the whole context as we come to this section of the prophecy of Zechariah. And so, it's best to see this prophecy as an Old Testament depiction of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the culmination of all things. The opening verses of the chapter, chapter 14, depict an attack on the city of Jerusalem in which God's people are saved and His enemies judged. And therefore, there are good grounds for seeing this as a description of the judgment that precedes the final and eternal states of heaven and hell. We turn again, as we did this morning, to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The Apostle John plainly refers to the church and not to an earthly city when he writes, Revelation 21 verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so, if we read Zechariah 14 in the light of Revelation 21, 2, and 3, we see that chapter 14 of the prophecy of Zechariah describes not some, as the as a commentator puts it, not some millennial hiatus in an earthly Jerusalem, but the end in glory. It's the city that has foundations, as the writer to the Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 11.10, whose designer and builder is God. And so, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, is represented by Zechariah in his prophecy as the end of the ingathering of all the nations in the great culmination of all things at the last great day. And that's why Zechariah warns about the fate of those under the symbolism of Egypt, chapter 14, verses 18 and 19. Now, originally, the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated the true promised land, even while the Israelites dwelt in an earthly promised land in Canaan. From Egypt, as well as the other surrounding nations, Zechariah says, there will be those who shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, Zechariah 14, verse 16. Of course, Zechariah wasn't the only prophet to speak in these terms, to speak of a great gathering, not only of ethnic Jews, but of Gentiles as well. The prophet Isaiah often used that same imagery. Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3 is a similar picture to the one that uh, Zechariah uh, has presented here. Isaiah presented that before the exile. Zechariah here using that same message and same symbolism after the exile. It's a depiction of the fulfillment of the promise given to the Son of God by His Father as reward for the fulfillment of His completed work as mediator. Of course, we see that in the great messianic psalm, don't we? Psalm 2 verses 8 
through 9. So as we put all of this together, what does it tell us? Well, here we have a picture of the nations coming to Christ, celebrating the great Feast of Tabernacles, remembering that they're pilgrims on their way to another city, the city of the New Jerusalem that John ultimately says comes down from heaven. As one commentator puts it, he says, this is a missionary vision in the Old Testament of God's great purpose to save Jew and Gentiles. What it means for these Jewish exiles returning at this point in redemptive history? Well, they had come home in one sense, from Babylon back to Canaan, but the earthly Jerusalem was not to be their ultimate home. They had gathered together as one in this place, as we read at the beginning of Ezra chapter 3, but their unity was not yet complete as the people of God. God's saving purpose still had to advance uh, beyond the borders of this geopolitical um, Israel at this time. Yes, according to God's commandment, they would sacrifice bulls and lambs, repeat the process daily, weekly, monthly, annually, according to the pattern that God had commanded under Moses, according to the Word of God under the Old Covenant. But it was only in an anticipation of a much greater fulfillment that was yet to come, in anticipation of the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, as John calls Him, who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, according to the great focus upon worshiping God, according to His commandment under the Old Covenant, He is specifically the Feast of Booths. They would do what God commanded, live in these temporary shelters on their roofs to remind them of who and what they were, the people of God, but the pilgrim people of God. One day, they and we will find ourselves in our true home, together with the people of God gathered from every nation and tribe and language and people, as John says in Revelation 14, to worship God according to His commandments, even to His great glory. And so they were waiting faithfully obeying God, a priority of His worship, a regulated worship, a God-centered and focused worship. And so are we to do still today. Details are different according to the covenant era in which God has us at His time and purpose, but the principles remain the same. The worship of God is the priority of the people of God. The regulated worship of God is our great concern to worship according to His commandment. And God Himself is our great priority that we worship Him, acknowledging that we are pilgrims on the way to that most glorious and consummate worship of the people of God in heaven above. May God so encourage our hearts this evening in the contemplation of these things. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us even as we consider the
things of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, which often seem unfamiliar to us and very distant to us, but we pray that You would help us to draw out the principles that are still applicable to us, though we are not commanded to go to a certain place at certain times of the year and to offer physical animal sacrifice in Your worship. Yet we pray that You would help us to worship You according to Your commandment under the new covenant, that that would be our great priority, that we would see that Your regulation of these things is to be done and not our preference and our particular likings. And grant that You, the triune holy God, would be our focus, that we would delight to do what You say, even as we await the great consummation of worship in heaven above. Encourage us, we pray, in these things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.